My name's Chad, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be together, to be in the Lord's presence. This is a great place to be. Uh, if you are anxious this morning, if you have doubts, if you're wondering if the Lord can help, this is the place. This is the place to be. He's good. He's with us. And I would like for to ask uh, if you'd pray with me again. I just, I love giving uh, my heart, my own heart to him uh, before we open his word. Uh, so let's do that. Lord, thank you for uh, the truth of uh, what your word says about you as a cornerstone. And Lord, it's a, a foundation stone, something that doesn't move, that can be built upon. And Lord, we know your word says loud and clear, Christ alone, cornerstone. Our world says lots of things that we can build on. And so we come this morning, not because we have everything together or because we are all full up of faith. Uh, we come because we doubt. We come because we're anxious. Uh, Lord, some of us are hurting this morning. Others feel maybe calloused, like we don't know how to get our heart moving in the right direction. And so, Lord, we're thankful that you say come, uh, not if you're well put together, uh, if you're already satisfied, if you've already got things figured out, you say, come if you are thirsty. Come if you're hungry. Come if you actually don't know how to make it. And, uh, and come, it's thinking of Isaiah 55, come and buy without money and without cost. Well, that is astounding. Lord, but that is the grace of the gospel this morning. And so we ask for the grace to understand, to hear to uh, hear your heart, your voice for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Luke's gospel. If you want to turn in your own copy of God's word, whether that's uh, a real paper, brick and mortar Bible, or it is your device, um, as we are now saying, let us see the glow of God's word on your face. Um, we'll open up to Luke chapter four, verse 14. Uh, reminder, Luke was a real person who was trying to tell the story of Jesus to his friend, Theophilus. And Theophilus was somebody that didn't know for sure if he could be certain about who Jesus was. You may be in the same place. And so this is a great book to be in. And the opening of the gospel, he actually says, I want you, Theophilus, he says, most excellent Theophilus, any of your friends say that to you? Most excellent, Chad. Um, I want you to be certain. I want to give you this most important story in the world so that you can be certain. Uh, we don't know for sure, but my guess is Theophilus, if you had a sliding scale of skeptic, seeker, believer in Jesus, I put him somewhere in here. <laughs> We don't know where he was. We know he was thinking about it. We, we can't say for sure that he didn't believe anything. We can't say for sure that he was locked in because obviously Luke was giving him this story, wanted him to know. And there's a question that Luke starts to unfold as we get to this part of the book. And you're going to see this unfolding in chapter after chapter, story after story. And here's the question, and it's a question you need to know, and it's a question you need to ask. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Not who is he historically not what are the facts about what we know in the Bible. Who is he to you? 
That is the question. The last week we were watching Satan, our enemy, and obviously the enemy of the kingdom of God, attack Jesus. And it was the first battle, the first opening salvo against the king of kings on the earth. And here's an interesting thing. He does not have the same question. He is not asking who is Jesus. You want to know why? He knows who he is. He knows who he is. In fact, as we get to later stories in the gospel, we're going to see demons actually say the same thing. Jesus will be calling to a demon to get out of somebody and the demons all start yelling, we know who you are, Jesus Christ, the son of God, the savior of the world. And Jesus is like, shh, don't say that. At least not yet. Demons have no problem identifying the son of God. They know the answer to that question In fact, Jesus' brother, James, would say in his book later in the New Testament, demons believe in God. They they know who he is and they actually shake and they shudder and tremble. His point is, how about you? So that question, who is Jesus? Theophilus is asking, who is he? Is, Is what's important to know about him? The people in the story today are asking the question, who is Jesus? Some of them think they know him. They've been around him their whole life. They think they know who he is. Maybe that's you today too. You've been around Jesus enough. You've been in the church enough. I know him. I have him understood. And then the question as scripture always does is points us to, we need to be asking the same thing. Who is Jesus to me? Not facts, not logic, not information, but does he know the answers to the questions of my soul? And have I found those answers in him. So let's look at the first three verses, Luke chapter four. Let's watch what's happening here. Jesus returned from the desert, from the wilderness, from the big fight, from the big show, even though it was in private, in the power of the spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Code for that is people are talking. Okay. People are talking about this guy. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Good. He came to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he was a regular attender at synagogue. So it was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And you didn't have to be somebody famous or anybody could read. They could ask and call upon anybody to read. Now to teach and to explain, that was maybe set apart for somebody else. But anybody could be the reader for the day. And so Jesus wasn't a special thing that he stood up to read. He just happened to do it that day. He stands up to read. So this moment in history, the Bible says, wasn't just an ordinary moment. It wasn't just a, oh, hey, by the way, Jesus went to the synagogue and read the Bible one day. Galatians 4.4 says this about Jesus being sent to the earth, that it happened in the fullness of time. Really specific way to say God never reacts. He acts. He's never responding. Nothing surprises him. So when it comes to dealing with the problems of the world, we can always answer with God is. Somebody says, yeah, but what about all this pain and hurt? God answers with I am. When Moses was supposed to go to Pharaoh to ask for all these millions of people to be let go, he had a question. Who should I say he's sending me? And God said, tell them it's I am. Am. That is our answer. He doesn't change. He has always been. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. He's never off his game. He's never late. So when we say that Jesus showed up in the fullness of time, 
This is much more than him just being on time for synagogue. He is there at a precise moment. Now, why do I bring this up? Because when you read stories about Jesus and you're a 21st century American living in our world, we know media, we know entertainment, we know theater, we know when something's funny, we know when it's not funny. You may be that person who sits in a movie and you figure it out before everybody else and you really bug your friends. You're like, oh, he's going to do this. He's so the killer. Everybody's like, shut up. Like you... We know this stuff, don't we? We kind of know timing and presentation. We know now, even in school now, as I watch my kids do stuff for their projects, we kind of know how to do videos and edit and graphics and make stuff look cool. And we kind of have this little like test, kind of a, a temperature we can take if something's well done or if we're like, yeah, it was really cheesy. It was lame. So you might be inclined to think that Jesus wasn't thinking through these things very well. First of all, where is he? He's in a little bitty synagogue in Nazareth. They're tiny. I've seen them. They're not impressive at all. And we may be wondering, why doesn't he think through more? Why didn't God think through more a better place to do his presentation, to do his first shot at letting them know who he is? He needs to do a better job at thinking about timing, tone and what he says, when to minister, whom to minister to. We'll see later on in the gospels that the disciples will try to tell Jesus when to send people home. The church service has gone too long, Jesus. Send these people away. We'll see them try to tell Jesus, you know what, these kids, we don't want the kids in the service, Jesus. Send the kids away. We'll see him, them try to tell him to brag about healing somebody. Go tell the important people. Let's move on. Let's not spend time with this inconsequential small situation. Jesus will avoid all of them. He will avoid all those traps and he will follow the Holy Spirit and the Father's plan. He will be led to do certain things at a certain moment. So here we have a certain moment. He emerges from the wilderness having successfully handed Satan his lunch. And what does he do? Does he go to Jerusalem to the seat of power to say, just beat the devil. I'm on. Messiah's here. Is that what he does? No. Goes to his hometown. Routine, synagogue. Yay, that's really packing a punch, Jesus. If you look at these synagogues, and I've, as I said, I've seen them, they're not impressive. We're in Israel. You go to Israel not because the buildings look cool and not because the land is really that cool. You go because you knew Jesus was there and you kind of make the other stuff seem cool. <laughs> but it's really a dry, dusty place. There's some pretty things, but you go to a synagogue and you don't say, wow, what a great piece of architecture. You say, this is small and kind of dumpy. And so he was here and he said that here in this little place. Yeah. Routine, not supernatural display of God entering town, no bells, no whistles, a small, humble, quiet moment. He stands up, he opens the scroll to read. And these people don't get it. And we don't get it, but this small moment is actually a huge moment that has been in play since before the foundation of the world. 
The world has been building and gaining more and more sin under the weight of darkness and evil since the fall. And if you could picture it in space, it's almost like it's doing this. It's like a drunk that has so much darkness and evil hanging on it. It's at a tipping point under the weight of burden. Scripture actually tells us that the earth actually cries out and groans under the weight of sin. And in this moment, as Jesus steps up to read, if you could see it, God is gently and yet deliberately placing the last straw boop, on top of the world. And it is going to break. This moment, this little synagogue, this unimpressive town, this unassuming young rabbi stepping into the regular routine of synagogue is actually the straw that broke the world. We've all heard that idiom, that phrase, the straw that broke the camel's back. It's kind of a weird thing, but it's, we all get it though, right? It's like things built up to such a point that it was like all it took was just a straw and it broke. Now, why do I bring this up? And why do I do this? Why do I get caught? It's like I get my heart caught on these little barbs in the text and I can't get away from it because I start thinking about me and I ask this question, what was the straw that broke me? For these people, Jesus is stepping up and this is a huge moment for the world and maybe a huge moment for them. What about you? What was the straw in your life that you had built up to such a point, which was just like, I can't take it anymore. And all of a sudden God allows something to drop on you. And it's this tiny thing, but you're like, fine, I will break for you. I will give in. Because with those who have, have the eyes of faith here, this is indeed a moment of true change and spiritual upheaval. It says he went in the power of the spirit. What that means is he was following the plan of the Trinity devised before the foundation of the world. And he went to Nazareth where he had been a little boy, not Jerusalem, not the epicenter of religious and political power, but Nazareth with his family and his friends, which you might think is a good idea. But I mean, if you're going to tell your family that you're God, uh, I don't know if that's going to go so well who have known you their whole life, who've wiped your nose and fed you. And we know Jesus, Matthew 13, tells us he had brothers and sisters. So they're watching this happen. And he's like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm, I'm God. Just wanted to get that cleared up. It's probably a pretty interesting moment for the family. As was his custom, he stands up and he reads. It's not a new thing. This was something he did often. People are talking, he's teaching, we think, eh, significant, maybe. Looks, seems kind of small, but this is the moment. This is game on. This is a tiny action by the Lord sitting on a pile of history full of sin, but also there's a little hope and longing. Look at verse 17. He starts to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled it and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls the scroll back up, hands it back to the attendant. He sits down. 
Now, when, back then, they would read standing up, and then the, whoever was going to teach would sit down and explain what had just been read. So everybody's looking at him as he sits down. And instead of telling them, well, let's talk about this and how we usually talk about this, he says, hey, by the way, what I just read there just got fulfilled right here. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, not like our normal church stuff where we're like, wait, did he say something important? No? Okay. Back to the dreaming about lunch. People heard this and went, oh, what is it? Did he just, what did you say? Nobody would listen to this and say, oh yeah, no big deal. Now, I remember teaching as a youth pastor. Uh, my first job was in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was cocky and I thought I could bring the thunder when I spoke. I couldn't. But I used to think about the Old Testament and it was totally a culturally appropriated view of the Old Testament. Just my own great wisdom of what I thought about the Old Testament, which was really just a summary. And I saw it as an old book with an old way of doing things and an old angry God portrayed in it. And I remember saying this to my youth group because I remember them asking in a Sunday school class. And I said, you know what? Old Testament pretty much can be summed up like this in my cocky way. The Israelites could never get it right. They ran from God. God would call out to them. They never would respond. He would get angry and punish them. So God decided to try a different approach, a softer, more gentle and kind approach in the New Testament with Jesus. And in my notes here, I wrote sad face because it's such a horrible interpretation. It's such an awful way to see the Old Testament. Now, when you think about Jesus, what Bible did he have to read? Did he have Philippians? I can do all things through me who strengthens me. No, he didn't have that one. Jesus had the Old Testament. That was his Bible. You could say, Jesus, how was your chair time? Well, I had a good time thinking about what I wrote. That's, that's the truth of it. All of the words of the Old Testament, he literally gave it to the people that wrote it down and spoke and prophesied it. But it was his Bible. And so when he speaks, and even the New Testament, it always connects back to the Old Testament. I didn't do that as a youth pastor. Now I feel like I'm starting to figure it out. And it just takes sitting in there and reading it, but it's all connected. So he finds the place and how interesting that he found a specific place that happened, just happened to talk about the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the future king, the deliverer whose rule would bring about the kingdom of God in the end of days. Oh, that small passage. That's the one you found? Yep, just happened to find it here. Thought I would read it. Like an artist picking the perfect color like a surgeon grabbing a scalpel, like a sculptor picking up his chisel and hammer, Jesus turns to Isaiah 61 and he reads. It's the right moment. It's the right tool. It's the right words of truth. And now you have the right man, the God man, speaking and explaining it. And this is how it's supposed to work. You read the Bible with the Holy Spirit of Jesus 
who helps you understand everything that the Bible is saying about Jesus. And whenever we see Jesus talking about the scripture, he talks about the whole thing. He connects everything together. So notably, Jews today that do not believe in Jesus as the Messiah would read Isaiah 61 and say, that is not about Jesus. Isaiah 53 is not about Jesus. The servant, that is such a misinterpretation. But here's the thing. Jesus said it was about him. And my preferred interpretation of the Bible is Jesus' interpretation of the Bible. I'm going to go with that one. What's interesting here is that the people listening are also only beginning to see the God-man in front of them. It's a thread. It's just this one little thing, maybe a few strands of color interwoven with a few thousand other threads that they've heard their whole lives. But what will eventually be seen is the Jesus tapestry. Now, I am such a rabbit trail, which is another way of saying I get distracted. But... I let the Lord take me sometimes. And so this is, uh, Raphael was a contemporary learned from Michelangelo. Um, Michael, Michael, Michelangelo, Michelangelo. How about that? I don't speak Italian. Um, it's called the Resurrection of Jesus. It's one of 11 tapestries. You may be like, oh, cool. It's a rug hanging on the wall. Um, but the actual size of this is about the size of our screen. Massive undertaking. And what Raphael did is draw what they called a cartoon uh, which would be the picture that those who would weave it would look at. And usually they would draw the cartoon in the reverse and put the picture reflected in a mirror. And then the weaver would sit behind and look at the, keep kind of checking back and forth to see. So here was part of my uh, rabbit trail. To make this, one square foot of it would take about a month. Just one square foot, just intricately weaving. And so I learned a couple of things about tapestries this week. The threads that go this way, anybody know what they're called? You're going to know today. <laughs> it's called a warp. And the threads that go this way, the color, the actual art artist stuff that you see is called a weft. So you can go home today and at lunch, what'd you learn at church today? Warp, weft. I was changed. Um, <laughs> So warp and weft, and let me show you. I got a couple of pictures to show you what, what it takes to make tapestries. Um, so you see all these little things hanging. They're called bobbins, and they have each color of the thread. You can kind of see the uh, warps there, but it's a painstaking, old, old way of doing things. Look at the next one. You can kind of see a little closer here. They take these wefts, and they move them through, and I think the next one shows how they kind of push them down. Just slowly but surely. And here's what you can see if you're looking close. Look at the last one. Isn't that a beautiful picture? No, it isn't because you don't know what it is. You're looking up close and you can't tell. But if you can pull back, which is kind of, I think learning about Jesus and growing in Jesus is kind of like this. Your life, it's like he hits you with something and at first, it's like this tiny little straw moment. And then he gets in there and he's like, all right, we're going to weave this thread of truth in here. And you're like, I have no idea what you're doing. I don't know what this is. This is what it's like to walk with Jesus to learn. Over time, though, you become aware of this brilliant artist who is creating this masterpiece. And so he takes what has been hundreds and even thousands of years of prophetic words, the word of God, these threads foretold and promised in other threads. And now he's standing in front of them and he's weaving 
in this tapestry. Last week, I talked about how pulling on one thread of the New Testament causes the Old Testament to go like this. Because you can't disconnect it. And so if you pull a thread from this story, and a lot of people try to cut threads and say, that's not connected to that anymore. That's so stupid in the Old Testament. We don't need that. We're just going to make our own thing. But what God says is, no, it's this really intricate process that takes years and years and years and where I've delivered truth and I have put it there so you can see it. And so you pull on a thread, you're going to start to see that it's connected to everything else. But in the moment, what are you seeing? There's a thread. What's he doing? What did he just say? Did he just say that about himself? That makes no sense. I know you, Jesus. I watched you grow up. Now, every Jew who would have heard this specific passage in Isaiah 61 knew what it was about. It's the end time. Salvation. It's the kingdom of God coming on the earth. This is when God comes back. This is when he uses a servant. We don't really know who that is. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen, but they knew what the passage was about. And so here's this young rabbi sitting in this dinky little town in a synagogue saying, oh, it's fulfilled right now. I kind of wonder if anybody was like, Really? This is it? Jesus steps in though and says, it's me. Let's look at a couple of things he says to proclaim good news to the poor. It is both physical and spiritual poverty. Jesus doesn't leave out the physically poor. In fact, he says, you must care for the poor. It's one of the reasons why we encourage you to tithe, to give. It isn't just so we can do this. We actually minister with those resources to the world. We give it away. We try to do things for the poor. But what else do we know about the poor? What did Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. They know they need him. They know they need him. And some would even say that not having a lot sometimes makes it a little easier for you to know your need spiritually. The reverse could be the true of those who have a lot. He also says, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Again, physical and spiritual. Why do we need to be set free? From what? Well, captivity then was Rome. We could say now in our world, our government systems of the world, they're not perfect There's still things holding us captive, but spiritual captivity, captive to sin and death, recovery of sight to the blind, both physical and spiritual. Jesus was not only saying, I can heal and he would touch people that were blind. What is he saying to his brothers and sisters? And you got to kind of keep seeing them and his neighbors. You are blind. You need to see again, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, both physical and spiritual oppression. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, also known as the year of Jubilee, which they had this thing in the Old Testament. Every seven years, God put in place this thing that said all debts canceled. Some of you are like, can they do that for school loans? That'd be amazing. Let's do a year of Jubilee for school loans or home loans. Can you imagine if you just had to hold on for like four more years? Just say, you can do it. Just make your payments for four more years. And then the year of Jubilee comes and it's like slate wiped clean. All debts canceled, all those who are working indentured, enslaved to other people, set them free. So what is he saying about spiritually? Your debts, your sins wiped clean. This is what is available. There's something else though, and this is one of those other little hooks that kind of got my heart. He's not just saying that these things are coming. He's actually 
saying, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to get it done. Now, one of the things that we know about Jesus, and if you have experienced hearing his voice in his word with his spirit kind of knocking on your heart, is that when he says something, he actually gets it done. He does something. When you hear God's word, it's supposed to change you. It's supposed to cause you to respond to him, to cause you to know I've got to either say yes to what he's saying or no to what he's saying. Now you may say, I really don't like it when Chad talks about this or that, it really makes me uncomfortable. And so I'm going to find another church and that happens and it's okay. Yeah, promise. Like I have learned to say, bless you. And if you come back, bless you. <laughs> what? Like, it's not, my, it's not my control, like whatever God's doing. But I'll say this, if your reason sometimes for going to another place or listening to somebody else or finding that teacher who says what you want to hear is because you don't want to answer the question. Oh, they're saying though that I don't have to. Jesus says, yeah, you're going to have to answer my question though. When Jesus speaks and he says, you need to be set free, you're blind, you're held captive, you are oppressed spiritually, and I want to set you free, what do you say to that? You can't say, no comment, I will remain neutral, Jesus. I don't want to stir up anything. I don't want anybody to know what I said either. Jesus says, you can't do that. Nobody give, he doesn't give you that option. So I just keep imagining him looking at his brothers and sisters as he's speaking, because that's how small this would have been. Nobody can listen to him and not be affected. They're going to be challenged in their heart to do something, to respond. So his friends and family in Nazareth hear him. They're being compelled to respond, and that is saying it lightly. They are a vertical strand, a warp. And Jesus is coming in with his weft, and he is saying, I'm going to weave here, and you have to respond because I'm weaving and I'm tapping and I'm weaving and I'm tapping and I'm putting, I am writing my story. So how do they respond? Let's look at the last few verses and ask, how will I respond as you read? All spoke well of him. Hey, hey, good Jesus. That's what we do. Now pass the offering plate. Just kidding. But this is how a lot of things like, like success in Israel, like what we're doing, let's do it. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Good. They spoke well of him. They marveled at his gracious words. Service is over, everybody. Wasn't it a great day today? Nope. And then some of them said, hey, isn't this? And you could just put, you could put just in there. Isn't this just Joseph's son? The carpenter? Gee, yeah, that's him. I know him. He did some work for us. You imagine if Joseph was hired out, here comes Jesus carrying the toolbox, walking into, you know, Fred's house. I doubt there's any Jew named Fred in the Middle East, but, you know, went over to Fred's house and hired him out. They did some work and he's sitting there in the crowd and he's like, isn't this just Joseph's son? So Jesus, instead of taking a reasonable, let's talk about this approach, just goes for it. Verse 23. You know what you're going to say to me someday? You're going to say, why don't you heal yourself? If you're so great, why don't you heal yourself? We heard about what you did at Capernaum. Aren't you going to do that in your hometown, Jesus? Carpenter boy. Aren't you going to do that here? He said, you know what? Truly, I say to you, you will not accept me. 
not in my hometown. And I'll tell you this, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up and three years and six months, there was a great famine over all the land. And Elijah was not sent to anybody in Israel. He was sent to this widow, Zarephath, a foreigner. No Jews got blessing. The foreigner did. Oh, yeah. And also not sent to the hometown to be cleansed because there are lots of people with leprosy. But only the foreign guy, Naaman, was cleansed. Now, you got a little clue here that Jesus' message and gospel is for all nations. That's what he's saying. But you also have this thing of where he is in their face saying, look out that you miss the king of your own house. So when they heard these things, they said, that is so challenging and we will think about what you said. (laughs) Nope. All in the synagogue. I haven't had this happen in church yet, but it may happen one day. Were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. Wow, this is such a great ending to a church service. So that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst. I, all, I love this. This happens a few times in the New Testament. And I just wonder if it was one of those moments where he was like, and they're all like, whoa, what happened to us? Verse 22 All spoke well of him and marveled and said, hey, isn't this Joseph's son? Is all you need to know about how people respond to Jesus. It's the two choices laid out clearly. Some marveled and in the same breath said, Jesus? You mean Joseph and Mary's boy? One is a path to seeing more of the tapestry, even becoming part of it. The other is, well, not so good. It's also about giving way to the subtle weight of the last straw where God is dropping it onto your life. And you know when this happens, you can tell when it is built up to this level and then all of a sudden he allows something else to happen in your life. Maybe it's 2020 for you. Maybe that is the last straw where you're like, I've had enough. I finally am going to break for Jesus. But It's not supposed to stop there. Eventually, the weight of the last straw becomes the weight of the beam of the cross, which then becomes the weight of his glorious resurrection, which then becomes the weight of the anticipation of the return of the king in which he will finish the Isaiah 61 passage. I don't know if you knew that. He cut it short. When he stopped in what he said earlier, the other part of it says, and the day of wrath, the day of judgment, the weight of all of that, it all falls just from that one small straw, that one moment building since eternity past. You cannot avoid this. You cannot. Jesus could have easily said after he said those tough things and they were marveling. And then they asked, right, let's say right after the first question, are you just Joseph's son? He could have said, you know, I know this is tough to hear. I mean, supernatural things are so hard and talking about God is difficult, but we're all spiritual. And let's talk about things that are spiritual and how you, and I read it and I was thinking about that and I was like, gross, because I've done it. 
I have been and tried to convince people who do not believe and won't believe with some just, well, don't use words very much when you preach the gospel. Don't say hard things. Don't talk about really difficult things like sin and judgment. Just, you know, butter. Just, just butter the gospel in. It doesn't work. And it doesn't work because God has set it up that truth will speak and truth accompanied with the power of the Holy Spirit changing somebody's life. And so I read that and I was thinking about Jesus didn't do that. He did not go there. Instead, he just lays it on the line. He calls out what they may be politely hiding. And he says this, I know I'm not going to be accepted here in my hometown. Tells them what they're thinking. And I know what you're going to say to me in the future. Heal yourself. Anybody know where that was said? He's on the cross. He's hanging there. And people are standing below mocking him saying, come on down, great physician. We saw you heal so many people. Why won't you heal yourself right now? And he tells them those really difficult stories that kind of says, hey, you're not responding, you're not listening. And so I'll take my message and my gospel elsewhere. So Jesus is gracious in his words, and yet he packs a punch to the soul. And so I would say, yep, that's the Jesus I know. That's him. He won't mess around because the stakes are life and death. So he's willing to go there with you. So how does his first public ministry teaching time go in his hometown? Jesus, how was that time in the synagogue? Well, I made everybody mad and they tried to kill me. So I think pretty well. It was awful. This is a first moment in public and it's awful. And why is it awful? Because they're struggling to answer the question that we started with. Who? Who is Jesus? No. I know who he is. I have a preconceived understanding of him. They think they already know who he is. Maybe you do too. Yet some of them would start to feel the weight of that moment. Some would begin to see. The blindness would be falling from their eyes and they would see Jesus coming in, weaving this story and that their very own hearts would be woven with his who is Jesus? They would say, oh yeah, he's my neighbor. That's Joseph's son. But with faith and with what God was doing in their hearts, if they had the spirit's power to move beyond that, they would say, he is the son of God and my savior. That is the trajectory. That is what the tapestry looks like. If you pull back, you may say, no, it doesn't. I can just see these threads right here. And Jesus says, hey, pull back. Look at the whole story. That is where it's headed. When it is finished, that is what it'll say. And it will say, what did you do with Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus to you? So I like to think, and as we finish about his own brothers and sisters in this crowd, imagine this mob of people. I don't know how they do this, but how do you get somebody who's in the synagogue and then like drive them? Like, are they chasing him? Are they throwing stuff at him? Is, are people shoving him in the streets? They're driving him to a cliff driving him to this place to say, we're going to kill you for what you said. We're going to kill you. So here's what I want to know. Were his brothers and sisters in that crowd? Maybe on the edge? I don't know. But it wasn't a, wasn't a big town. It wasn't a huge service. 
I doubt they just stepped off and like, well, I'm not about this. I think they probably followed to see what was going to happen. Jesus, you got yourself into that. You should have just closed your mouth. Brothers and sisters that we know would later become leaders in the church. The book of James, well, that's his brother. And when he opens his book, he doesn't say, James, and yes, I was the brother of Jesus. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did James answer that question, who is Jesus, sufficiently? Yes, he did. The right answer. He broke under the weight of the straw and his heart was interwoven with the tapestry that had been told and has been told and is still moving to this day to include you. Question is, how will you respond? Who is he to you? I've heard this, that every pastor has one sermon in them, pretty much, that you'll listen to somebody and if you're here a long time or whatever, you'll say, yeah, I can tell you what he's gonna say. I can tell you what he's gonna say, it's Chad. And that's okay. That's okay. You may have figured it out, but what I have come to understand is the Lord will keep hammering you and keep moving until he gets you. The Bible compels and honestly demands a response from you to feel the weight of that seemingly insignificant straw, to know this is the moment, it has all led to this, or to begin to have your own spiritual blindness healed so that maybe you can see him for the first time, truly see him to be woven into his tapestry, his story, to change your question from who is Jesus, because that is what you will be asked. You will stand before the Lord and he will ask you that question. Tell me who Jesus Christ, the son of God is to you. That will be the question. And hopefully your answer will be, I know him. I know him. I am blood bought by Jesus Christ. He paid for my sins on the cross. I surrendered. Every once in a while, I tried to do stuff on my own and be really super religious and super spiritual, but I knew it was all grace and I knew it was all him. My life is and was and forever shall be his. That's what Luke wanted for Theophilus. He wanted him to be able to answer that question in that way. And it's what God wants for you. Have the worship team come up. We're going to move to the table together. And let me just say this if you have, if you can answer that question in that way, in some form, the table is for you. It is to celebrate what Jesus has done for you, to remember what he has done for you. If you said yes, like if you say, I know him, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is mine, I have accepted that, I've confessed my sins, I know apart from him, I'm nothing then join us. If not, I would say to you, wait. Wait until you can answer that question. And I would love to talk to you about it if you want to afterwards. But we come to the table and I remember uh, there was a time when there were a bunch of people standing around Jesus asking this question, the who is Jesus question. They're actually struggling a lot with what he was saying. Yeah, work those things open, they're a pain. And he said this in John 6, 35, to their questions of who he is. He says, I am bread, not just any bread. I am the bread of life. 
In the same little sermon, he also said, and you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, oh. Struggling to figure out what is this all about? But he summed it up when he says, if you come to me, you will not go hungry. I will satisfy that hunger. And if you believe in me, you will never thirst. So he sat down with the disciples the night, the night of nights. The one that started with the straw standing up in front of his friends and family became this moment in front of the disciples. He would be betrayed within hours. So it's a pretty big meal. It's a pretty big meal. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. Should open mine. After blessing it, he broke it gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, real bread. Let's partake together. There we go. I was afraid. He also took the cup and I just noticed something for service and I'll point it out to you guys. Uh, he gave thanks, he took the cup and he said, thank you, Father. And I had this thought that maybe he went back. That's how fast I would go if I was God, probably even faster. A couple thousand years to the Passover, the first night when he said, take a lamb, kill it, innocent. It will serve as a sacrifice in your place. Take the blood, put it on the door of your house over the lintel. And when I see it, I will pass over your house. You will not die. And I imagine Jesus lifting this cup and thanking the Lord. And I imagine him saying, Father, Thank you. It's finally here. It's finally here. Let's get this thing done. Let's get this thing done. The thing that we planned in eternity past to save their souls. Let's get this done. And he said to them, this, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then what about this great promise? I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day. I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's going to be a big table in heaven. The marriage supper of the lamb. And what Jesus is basically saying is, I'll raise a glass again. And I think we will all raise our glasses to say to the king, he has done it. Jesus says, I'll wait until that moment to share another glass with you. But until that time, drink it now. Lord, we also give thanks. We thank you that it has been done. I love, as my friend Alan Thompson shared with me a few weeks ago, it is finished. 
He is risen. He is coming again. It is finished. He is risen. He is coming again. Lord, thank you that you stepped into little synagogues, little dusty towns where people didn't like you, thought they had you figured out. You spoke words even when people wouldn't understand. You let them push you around. You let them push you all the way to the cliff and then somehow you made it escape through. But you took it for us. And Lord, ultimately, thank you that the weight of that first moment, that straw, Lord, became the weight of the cross, which then became the weight of the resurrection and our anticipation of your return. You did that for us, Lord, and we can trust you. We can build our life on you, Jesus, on what you have done, what you have accomplished. So we just say thanks. And Lord, if there are those at this moment who are like the earth in that moment and they feel like their life is literally teetering, about to fall over, drop that straw, Lord. Let them see you weaving your beautiful gospel story into their heart, Lord. Let them surrender. Let them say yes to you. We ask that you would do your thing. Let your Holy Spirit minister to us now as we sing together. In Christ's name, amen. Why don't we stand?